0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me Luke Clancy and this week our audio journey takes us from the apocalyptic fusion of Aideen Barry's oblivion to the state of keening in 2021, the lost women of piping and a night at the Walt Disney Theatre to catch the LA Phil's quality gear and we'll begin with this ominous shape here opening next week at limerick city gallery of art is a great big hole a dark swirling void into which everything in existence is not so slowly being sucked An animated image of the hole forms the opening of digital artist Aideen Barry's collaborative work Oblivion, a surround sound video centrepiece of the artist's new exhibition. Oblivion was commissioned by Music Network and the Irish Traditional Music Archive as a response to the Bunting Archive, the collection of early harp music so crucial in preventing the Irish harp tradition from disappearing into just such a dark hole, which in turn summoned a resonant image of a world on the lip, as Aideen Barry told Culture File.
1: Oblivion came about because I was uh, nominated to make a proposal in response to the Bunting archives. And I was actually quite enamoured and affected by the attempt by Bunting in 1796 to write down the last Liltson errors, And I thought this was an incredible endeavour. And something that made me think about how would you replicate such a philosophy now? Um, one of my greatest anxieties that I have, like living in the 21st century, I am concerned we are the last generation of artists. And it's because I feel environmental apocalypse, the fact we're living through a global pandemic and the, those existential threats that are affecting us all, um, and that they are so great that we could be the last generation of artists and in a way it's a similar uh, dichotomy that was affected affecting bunting that if he didn't write these things down it would be lost to oblivion the actual harp would be lost
0: How was Bunting getting the sense that he was at this sort of inflection point, and was there a sense that he really needed desperately to do this job? You know, because I'm I'm really interested in how you sense that there's a moment that like that something is about to happen. It's a it's a sense that kind of is quite prevailing at the moment, and I'm interested in you you kind of looked at it in in Bunting as a as a reference to our own time. What was he sensing in the air?
1: I think he was sensing that there had been such a. an an existential threat that had been put on the harpers and there was only a handful of them left there was only like 11 or 12 left and there had been instigations by the Belfast Harp Festival to try and encourage harpers to come and celebrate it through competition and encourage the art form to continue he felt a sense that this was a moment that was going to be lost I kind of identified with it. it was he he felt that unless I do something now and and he was such a young man, he was nineteen when he started writing these things down, which is kind of remarkable i I, I don't know if he realized at the time what an enormous gracious thing he did. I, I felt that this is quite a melancholic project, and so we were looking at something that had a, a kind of a minor chord or a mo- within that modal structure of the music, that also kind of ha- had maybe references to other moments of real sadness. Uh, so we picked up on really Terlaco Carlin and his lamentations of Owen Roe O'Neill. Which obviously has its history in the flights of the Earls, but also Turloquo Carlin himself was actually kind of a, a fairly interesting and tragic kind of character himself. He lost his sight through a previous pandemic
0: of smallpox. And it's not just the sound of the music that kind of have filtered into oblivion. I mean, one of the things that had emerged from uh, Bunting was this idea that there was a special way that the harpist played with very long fingernails, which became then a visual motif in the work.
1: If you listen to contemporary music like Cardi B or Little Nas X now, and you look at their kind of music videos, you see that's, this trope of the long nails, it's kind of this contemporary trope. But actually, in our history, the Irish harpers would grow their nails extremely long because the the harps were created in a different way. They had like metal strings. the The harpers would like pluck with their these extremely long nails. They must have looked quite extraordinary. And no wonder they were kind of considered soothsayers in the medieval era because they looked quite supernatural or something. Takuyut <laughs> kisiani. I'm really interested in people who look at historic or traditional artistry and incorporate it in contemporary practice and other people who are looking at things that are on the edge of oblivion in their work. The most important collaborator, in a way, is somebody who's really, who is a contemporary Edward Bunting, is
2: Nunabut,
1: Who is this Inuit electronica artist
2: Who um, I
1: befriended a couple of years ago, and we had been talking about collaboration, but I was just kind of astounded at what she was doing with Inuit throat singing, which had been an art form that was banned up until the 1980s in Canada. So she takes this throat singing, which has been passed down from one generation to the next through her mother's line, and she contemporizes it in this incredible pop musical form. I mean, I guess I'm kind of a little bit worried that art has always been held in these kind of highbrow, classist kind of terms and spaces where they can be a bit prohibitive to audiences. And I'm like, I'm from a working class background myself. I grew up in Mayfield and Cork. And if I didn't have access to culture in popular cultural ways, like on the radio or on television, I don't know if I would have become an artist. So I'm really... For me, I think uh, that I have a responsibility to try and activate art in a different way and give people a sense of ownership.
0: The video for Oblivion starts with this sort of abysmal hole into which all creation seems to be sinking. I'm not particularly hopeful.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I, I mean, I am worried, right? And I hope I'm wrong. Like, I really hope, like somebody, you know, tells me in 20, 30 years' time, you know, you were absolutely wrong. You're not the last generation of artists, right? But I do want to get that serious message across, you know, what if we are? It's about creating conversation, right? I mean art is a different language in a way. It's something else. It's beyond um what you and I are talking right now. It's something else. And I kinda hope it kind of permeates the skin in some way and gets us thinking, what is our responsibility and how can we do something that can protect culture for the future? How can we do something? Because we're a remarkable species. Like humans are amazing. But we're also amazing at, like, ruining things. So how can we maybe catalyse the conversation to talk about our responsibility to our children, our future artists, our future selves? And who is it all for?
0: Aideen Barry there, an live manifestation of her Oblivion featuring Reet and Harper Ashling Lions will be live streamed at Solstice 21st of December at 7:30 p.m. via YouTube, Instagram and all the others. Aideen Barry's solo exhibition at Limerick City Gallery of Art opens 16th of December and is booking now. A Whale of a Time next on the CultureFile Weekly with a new Keening-inspired performance from Galway's Brew Theatre. Gull, meaning to cry, is set in the island of the 1930s and features an all-female cast exploring the musical tradition of Keening with a blend of theatrical performance and vocal lament. Gull has been created by James Reardon, along with musical director Juliana Bloodgood, who spoke to File's Louise McMahon about the ancient and radical act of collective grief. So the story is set roughly around 1930.
3: It's in a small community in the west of Ireland. It follows Keeners or the Manolquincha, who would professionally lament at the passing or the wakes and funerals of the dead people of the community. And so this was an act that was prevalent in Ireland for centuries and started to die out, kind of from 1850 onwards, more in the eastern part of the country and and moved west. When a keener was keening, they could say what they wanted about the dead and the living and all the accounts of it, you know, talk about this kind of almost shamanic wildness. And so there's the lead character. Her name is Ethna. She has her pal, Teresa, and some of the other women in the community, and they are keeners. You know, people are emigrating and people are moving to bigger places and there's not that new generation of women to come and learn. And at the same time, a woman comes back from America to mind an ailing aunt and with her comes a very Christian, clean, more Latin, beautiful way of singing for the dead. time radio started to kind of take hold in Ireland. There was a big uh, Eucharistic conference in 1932 that was kind of one of the big first broadcasts. So we've kind of put that as a kind of moment in history when people started to hear mass coming from radio as opposed to live. We know what happened with Keening and the and they didn't make it through. So the ending isn't as much about the fact that this tension between tradition and progress is lost. It's more that interest in as the wave is beginning to turn within this community. Throughout the piece, you're going to hear traditional keynes that follow a dirge, but also then a kind of a Latin inspired, more hymn-like approach and how they, they kind of collide now and then in some of the set pieces we've made. There's kind of phrases like which would be Irish language words that would make up whole sections almost of the keen. And then within the dirge you would be directly talking to the dead. You could be talking to the family. You know, it was also used, interestingly, as a way to tell the wider community what the family of the deceased would now need. It wasn't just all the good, but the bad too. And it was all aired. Whereas then we move into more of a kind of somber Catholic church kind of way of of only the good bits. (laughs) You know when the women have to keen another woman who's died, but she was being kind of a domestic abuse, and they, they they bring it up in front of the priests and stuff. They they, they have to bring it up because if they don't, it's a doing a disservice. It's talking about Joch uh, and why and why andjaljoch and you black and blue and why were you black and blue and what did he do to you? What did he do? And you the Joch and a horn and a horn. Starting to question: Do you forgive him? Do you forgive him? Only you can forgive him now. They can't forgive him. It has to be you that forgives him. And the black and the blue and a horn and a horn. Within the singing, it kind of comes across a little bit differently because you have five strong ensemble of, of women kind of supporting Helen or Ethna, the lead character, to go there with this kind of poetic outburst, effectively. She kind of gets caught up in it and oversteps the mark at that moment when attitudes are changing a little bit. And so it's, it kind of tees up this tension between a kind of church and an old, old traditional passing that was inherited and generational and learnt an oral, this oral poetry that is not written down really. You know, we have very few recordings of it. It was never recorded live because obviously it's a fragile, tender kind of moment. Again, we're taking that creative licence to try and bring something of our past onto a contemporary stage.
2: I mean, vocally, we work with different kinds of crying. There are cries and wails and whimpers. There's pleading with the voice. There's demanding with the voice. There is uh, seeking retribution. There is uh, praying. I always like to start, in a way, very technically. So where does this live in the body? In terms of the resonance of the voice, actually, where are you placing your cry? Is it somewhere in the face, in the head, in the forehead, in the cheeks, in the mouth? Is it in the chest? Is it in the belly? Is it in the guts? Is it in the earth? By working with things on a very technical level, we can kind of anchor it in the body and we don't get lost in emotions. Getting just into the keening itself is more about just the cries and the calls and the wails, which are atonal. They don't have so much tonal structure.
3: It's not learning to sing in one way, it's accessing something personal to the performers and sharing it. Particularly in a post-COVID time when we haven't been able to gather, when we haven't been able to grieve. This collective public grieving is kind of a radical act almost in terms of what we've just been through for the last two years we're really trying to see the balance between a narrative story, which is darkly funny. You know, these are older women who are making fun of each other and laughing and death is very much part of life. And they love the story behind why they died and how they died and who's going to be there. And then at the same time, you've got, you know, the the animal inside us coming out and this kind of unruly kind of howling.
0: The cries and whispers there of Gull, and that show runs until Sunday night in Nuns Island and on December fifteenth in Clonbur in County Galway at the All Saints Heritage Centre. A dove among a flock of frowzy old crows was how one writer described a performance of a woman, illin Piper, at the beginning of the 20th century. As Piper and researcher Louise Mulcahy discovered, the appearance of a woman on the pipes was hardly a rarity, even if information about the lives of women Pipers was scarce. After many years of research, Mulcahy has been able to right this wrong in her new documentary, Menor Napierb. The film tracks Mulcahy around Ireland as she unearths the lost stories of significant women pipers, building a fresh picture of a largely overlooked part of the history of trad, as she told Files Ornya Gallagher...
4: that really stood out to me when I started playing the Illum Pipes. I began playing the Illum Pipes because I loved the sound of the instrument and the power of it but what I quickly realised and noticed in the Illum Piping workshops was that I was often the only girl but when I started my father gave me a present of Irish Minstrels and Musicians which is a publication by Captain Francis O'Neill from 1913 and what I noticed in that book was there were a number of women mentioned photographs but very little information about them and as I looked for more information and asked more questions there was no information available to me so I really wanted to find out about their career if they continued playing what happened to their instruments what happened with their lives and so about five, six years ago I set upon the journey of finding out and unearthing this information and I didn't know if there was anything I was going to find out or if there was any other information available, but I've been pleasantly surprised and my eyes have certainly been opened wide to the lives of these pioneering women in Irish Piping. I'm Louise Mulcahy, I'm an Ellen Piper, a flute player and a teacher and I've been researching the story of women in piping for the last number of years. Incredible stories have emerged researching this and I suppose the traditional route of finding information through the archives, whilst the pictures were there and limited information I had to go down other avenues. One of the highlights has been locating family uh, relatives and especially family relatives in their 80s and 90s who've been able to enlighten me about their incredible relatives and, and, and pipers and really give me an insight into their lives. And also, one of the first or the earliest references I can see to women in piping has been in the 1800s, and that has been Kitty Hanley and Nance the Piper. And they are said to have started playing out of dire necessity. And then we can see a huge concentration of pipers in in Cork City. I suppose after the Great Famine, we see two main movements dominating the landscape, like Home Rule and the Gaelic League. And the Gaelic League or Cunhannagailga gave these women a performance platform. To showcase uh, Irish traditional music and dance and illan piping, but two women from three women actually from the Cork Piper's Club. We have Anna Barry and Anna Barry. There's really iconic photographs. Um, this particular one is taken from 1901, uh, and Anna Barry is seated on the left hand side of the photograph with a number of gentlemen. But she sent the media into a frenzy in 1901, and. On that particular day at that competition, she was placed in the competition, but the adjudicator describes her as a a dove amongst a flock of frowzy old crows. So not very complimentary to the gentleman, but what's interesting about Anna Barry is that she was born into a musical family. She would have received musical training in Cork, but also... We can now see from newspaper articles that she inspired other women to take up the pipes, the Illum pipes in Cork City. We see her as a catalyst. We all know that if you can see, have a presence, it often inspires, uh, or a visibility, it often inspires uh, more people to take up the instrument. So we can see that in her case. One other standout moment for me was Paddy Maloney, the great Paddy Maloney who we lost a couple of months ago, and Betty Nevin. And it's Another iconic photograph of the line of pipers and a very young Betty Nevin and Paddy Maloney as children uh, on their way to the Fly and Mullingar in, in 1951. And we see them reunited on screen for a really glorious, gorgeous, uh, moving interview. She was
1: an absolutely gorgeous player. And you know what I mean? To be part of the, the whole scene going on, you know, with the first hole and that sort of thing. Um, she was a gem. You know, she was very important, you know, she was an icon
4: there. Yeah. I suppose with other kinds of music, historically, women might have played a different kind of repertoire or they would have played on smaller instruments. And maybe the, yeah, the repertoire might have been more appropriate for being demure or whatever. Do we see that within our traditional music or were the women essentially playing what the men were playing? I think. They were essentially playing what the men were playing. Some of the records and some of the material that I've been given by the, the relatives of these pipers are fragments of tunes and transcriptions and certainly from Leo students, students, they would have been playing the, the repertoire as was of that day and some of the tunes are tunes which I would have learned um, you know at that starting out or I still play today so there seemed to have been no difference between repertoire for masculine for male or feminine um but what i did notice was that some of the, the women especially miss johnston had additional keys placed on her chanter which is the melody part of the instrument so she played the organ and she played classical music as well and so what we piece together is that Possibly those keys were used and put on the chanter so that she could play other genres or other other repertoires as well. It's a very interesting topic to look at the music, and I suppose the one thing is that we don't have any recordings, uh, so we're reading between the lines, you know, based on diary entries and concert programmes and printed material of that day and, and, and selections of tunes that they would have played. You must have felt like a bit of a detective doing this. <laughs> it was like one piece of it but to find out the information like it took so long because women changed their name you know if they got married so and then to try and find out what happened to them and how who they married and to to get to that point to bridge the gap from we'll say Molly Morrissey to her married name was was just incredibly uh, took a, a long time we unfortunately don't have any recordings of these women it wasn't until 1978 that the first commercial recording was made of a woman playing the Ellen Pipes and that was featured on the Piper's Rock album uh, and that piper was Maureen Ygrada amongst other pipers on the album Mick O'Brien, Davy Spillane and many other great figures in piping at that time so not that long ago, 1978 when you think about it but since then lots more recordings coming on stream and I'm sure lots more to come.
0: Louise Mulcahy there and the reporter was Ornya Gallagher. And Minon Napier is on T.G. Cahir at 9.30 on Sunday the 19th of December. And finally this time, a new radio poem created for File by Eve B. Golden. The LA-based artist, DJ and activist was inspired by a visit to the city's Walt Disney Concert Hall. This is Eve B. Golden.
5: He was taking me to the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra, and I couldn't be happier. We arrived with time to spare. To hear the arrangements of footsteps beating the window walls and off the ever-curving staircases. Everything felt so delicate before the show. People waiting in lines held the tips of their own elbows or onto the hands of their dates. No one seemed to be speaking aloud, and yet the room flowed with a stream of whispers and muffled laughter. Perhaps it was the masks and the respect people had for the orchestra hushing them, begging us to be extra mindful. The missions with N were always beauty and culture. With N, there was always a chance of wonder and music. The orchestra encapsulates a glamorous lineage of enclosed elite spaces, much like heaven's many rooms, where the music is kept, and the nectar, and the crestfallen sighs of dreamers and wanderers alike. What makes nights like these so wonderful is the way that intangible things interlock and conjoin while simultaneously negating and negotiating. The music, in its complexity, was itself history in that it fought and resolved and consoled, holding notes like hands, holding our heads and our breaths, instructing us, follow, follow, and at times, rest, I will return for you and then kissing around our faces saying tenderly, welcome home. If I may break for a moment, pulling my mask down in the grand music hall to say to Anne and to you that music is very hard to write about at times. Sometimes I wish I could just give you the music I experienced in the moments where I gasped and nearly cried. I wish I could Give the moments when a man's muffled coughing was a welcomed percussive interlude between strings and horns. I wish I could give you the soprano's inhale between heart-stopping declivities, the moments before applause. I wish you were there with me because there are no words to describe the capital M in music when it's happening. What precluded the orchestra was an unwelcome drama of this clunky, de moment in our society. I stepped on a woman's toes trying to reach my seat. In my defense, she didn't stand for me. This was one of several microaggressions I experienced at the Walt Disney Music Hall, despite me looking and feeling the part of a chamber enthusiast and musical researcher. History bears with it the inky stains of wars lost, ill-gotten gains, sanction. That to say, when she exclaimed, I have a sore foot, she was warning me that she would curse me with her eyes for the next hour. She was interrogating my being there, sitting next to her, and what it would take to really quell the storm I spun within her with my clumsiness. With her eyes, she could have been remembering a time when we weren't all welcome in this concert hall, or a time before that, when I specifically were not welcome there. Under a blanket of many instruments swelling into tune and the roar of applause as the conductor took his place, I put the woman's eyes to bed. The pause before the music began with N's hand to mine. And his voice to my ear. It's starting.
0: That was a radio poem by Eve B. Golden. And if you'd like to find her previous works for Culture File, we recently tweeted a playlist from our Twitter self at File Pod. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more Big Nights Out next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.